What's up, y'all? I'm James Lapine, and this is the Park Church Podcast. We've got a really great episode for you here today. Um, as you know, on, on this show, it's my job to talk with well-known authors, speakers, thinkers, um, etc., about the intersection of faith and day-to-day life. And today, uh, we're talking with Chris Horst. He's the Vice President of Development at Hope International, uh, and he has also co-authored Mission Drift with Peter Greer in 2014. If you're interested in entrepreneurship, in kingdom work, uh, and how to stay focused as a leader, uh, this episode will be great for you. Um, and so let's get right into it. Here is Chris Horst. Hey, Chris, thanks for, uh, for being on the show. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, happy to be with you today. My first question uh, is a little offbeat. I'm, I'm just wondering how many times have people texted you or called you Chris Horst? <laughs> you know, uh, it's a pretty regular thing, uh, to be honest with you. And the other thing that happens a lot, and I hesitate to even mention it, but it happens all the time, so I just have to tell you, is that because my last name is Horst, I often get people writing my name out, Christ Horst. And in fact, <laughs> uh, recently, I put in an order for uh, cardstock stationery, yeah. and, and so I had it with my name, I sent it in, and it came back like hundreds of copies of Christ Horst uh, note cards. Oh my and gosh. I went back to my email uh, and I looked at my order and I, I was confident that I hadn't submitted my name that way. And sure enough, they had made the mistake on their end. And <laughs> as it turned out, yeah, they just had messed up. And so we got to keep the cards and we use them for uh, art projects with our kids. Uh, but it's it's pretty embarrassing because the back of it says Christ Horse. Oh my gosh. That is amazing. Yeah, I almost called you Christ a few times when we were emailing to set this interview up. So uh, and, and then my iPhone was auto correcting to horse. So anyway, I'm, I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only one who that, uh, has happened to. Um, a, a friend of mine described you as, uh, they said every Christian in Denver is, is three degrees removed from Chris Horst. Uh, but for our listeners who aren't familiar with you or with your work, can you give us the 92nd Chris Horst story? Sure. Uh, dad, husband, father of three kids, and I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, so an Amish country, and moved out here to get married to my wife, Allie, in 2008, and have been in Denver since then, and my work, uh, since I finished undergrad, has been at uh, Hope International. I've been there just over 10 years, and I serve as our VP of Development, so in that role, I'm responsible to help Hope raise uh, $16 million a year to hit our fundraising goal. Uh, and serve as a spokesperson for Hope, both, uh, yeah, publicly in writing and in you know events and things like that. So uh, my job is really to be a, an ambassador for the message of Hope International and our work around the world in 16 countries. We are uh, missionary bankers, so we invest in the dreams of men and women uh, in those 16 countries, helping them to to invest in their own dreams, their livelihoods to start and expand small businesses as we proclaim and demonstrate the gospel in their lives. That's awesome. Tell us, uh, what are the 16 countries? Maybe you don't have to list them out, but maybe what was the criteria for picking those countries? Sure. We started in Ukraine right out of, right after the collapse of the Soviet Union 20 years ago. And, and there it really started because a church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where we were based, uh, had a partner church in Ukraine, in Zaporozhye, Ukraine, that they, they knew was hurting and they wanted to help them. And, and so they, they launched a microfinance program uh, helping the, the members of their church to start and expand businesses. 
uh, back in, in 1997. So 20 years later, uh, we've expanded in Eastern Europe. The, the bulk of our work today is in Central Africa, okay. but we also uh, have work in the Caribbean as well as in Asia. So okay. the 16 countries are all over, but really the thrust was Eastern Europe at the start, and today the bulk of our work is Central Africa. Now, I feel like this term microfinance is uh, coming more and more into popular culture, but can you tell us about what that means? In all of our lives, we have a, ways that we manage the money that we are entrusted with. And the way that we manage our money here often looks like a savings account, uh, access to a loan to start a business or to, to build a home or buy a home, to go to college. And that's true not just here but around the world. And in every country in the world, people have ways of managing their money. And in many places outside of the U.S. and outside of the West, the, the ways in which people manage their money are really insufficient and uh, leave them often victimized by money lenders uh, or by uh, loan sharks that take advantage of them and, and take advantage of their vulnerability. So hope is uh, we are bankers to the poor. We provide opportunities for close to 900,000 men and women in the 16 countries where we work to access safe, reliable financial services. So they have access to savings account, uh, to loans to start and expand small businesses, and to training to help them grow those businesses. And they receive that through Hope International's employees and our partners' employees around the world, all of whom are local to the country where they're working, and all of whom are believers. Hmm. And so we, yeah, we, we call ourselves missionaries in that we are we believe that the gospel needs to be demonstrated and proclaimed. Uh, and we also call ourselves bankers because the work we're doing is helping equip people in those same ways that, that we need to be helped and supported here to manage our money in effective ways. Yeah, I love that. Um, uh, over the past 10 years, what are one, two, three stories or highlights that stick out from the work that you guys have done? The biggest thing, that the biggest project we're working on right now is in Rwanda, where Hope International manages a uh, microfinance program called Orwego. Orwego is the largest microfinance program in the Hope International Network and currently serving over 300,000 clients, men and women across Rwanda uh, through 15 branch offices and over 300 Rwandan employees, all of whom are Christians who are sharing their faith in appropriate ways with the, the customers, the clients that they're serving. And the cool thing is, you know, a country of 10 million people, we're serving 300,000 households, uh, we're having a huge impact across the country and giving opportunities for people to borrow and save money in a safe way and and to hear the, the truth of the gospel. So uh, it's this really cool collision of, uh, of business and missions, and uh, it's been an exciting endeavor as we've expanded our footprint in Rwanda over the course of the past 12 months. Hmm. So that's one that, that comes to mind. Uh, another is we're, uh, like I shared earlier, we're celebra celebrating 20 years of of work, and we started in Ukraine 20 years ago, and so this year a big focus has been on celebrating the stories of the men and women in Ukraine who Hope has gotten to meet and work with over the past 20 years. And one of the the clients that s sticks out as someone who really demonstrates what we're all about is a couple that started a mountain biking business actually uh, a number of years ago, where they were initially just doing mountain bike tours, and then they got into mountain bike manufacturing and now have a vibrant business where they're doing sort of a full suite mountain biking uh, business 
in, in Ukraine, in the mountains of Ukraine. But they also, uh, as a result of Hope's influence in their lives and God's work on their hearts, they've become extraordinarily involved in their local community and our local philanthropists. They are investing in major ways in their church community. And so often we think about helping people overseas or abroad. We think about ways that we can help do things for them. Hmm. And I think the story of hope and the exciting thing about what's happening in Rwanda and Ukraine and elsewhere is we're helping people in these communities to become leaders uh, and to grow their own leadership capacity and impact in their own city. So they're the philanthropists in their community. They're the elders and deacons in their churches that are having a big impact in their communities as opposed to Americans who are flying in. Yeah, yeah. We, we had my sister, uh, Amy Peterson, on uh, the last episode of this podcast, and she talked a lot about uh, this Western mentality of we'll fly in and, and uh, help you and, and uh, give you everything you need as opposed to setting people up for their own success or, or even going in and learning from them. Um, so I love hearing about that, that shift in a mindset there. That's really cool. The, on this topic of microfinance, you serve on the uh, on the Colorado Micro, Microfinance Alliance Board. That's a mouthful, um, and it's obvious that you care a lot about poverty alleviation and then entrepreneurship and, and business as a solution to that. Can you tell us what this uh, this organization in Colorado is doing? Sure, we have a lot of great microfinance organizations right here in in Denver. And these are organizations that are faith-based and secular. They're organizations that are working locally as well as headquartered here working globally. And we felt as a group that we could do more together than we can do individually. Hmm. And so together we, you know, it's really an association of microfinance enthusiasts and practitioners. And we get together and we celebrate each other's successes and help each other with uh, our respective challenges and really just serve as a sounding board for the industry in the Denver metro region. So that group, uh, I love you know, being connected to microfinance experts and leaders that are very different from me, that are working in different contexts, and it's been great fun to see the work they're doing. One of the organizations that's been involved since the beginning and was actually birthed out of this alliance was a group called the Rocky Mountain Microfinance Institute. And for those uh, listeners who are from Denver, I can't recommend their work enough. They're just doing really, really effective work in our city and helping vulnerable people to experience the dignity of work. Hmm. And they've got a you know number of great programs, but the, the one they're most known for is their boot camp program, which helps people, uh, refugees, minorities, uh, low-income uh, members of the Denver metro region, to be able to to dream and and start and expand small businesses, and they provide opportunities for other business people to be mentors, coaches, volunteers. So I think it's a great, they're a great organization and a great way for uh, folks in Denver who want to get involved in microfinance to not have to travel across the globe to do so. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. We'll, uh, we'll make sure to link to them in the show notes. So uh, if you want to check out what they're doing, you can find that at parkchurchdenver.org slash podcast. Um, you, there was a phrase there, you said the dignity of work. I want to maybe mine into that a little bit more. And, and if it's related, we can talk about the work that you're doing, um, with the Denver Institute for faith and work. Um, we interviewed Bethany Jenkins a few months ago and she had mm. a lot of great thoughts on this topic, but, 
Um, yeah, could you just riff a little bit on uh, the dignity of work, how that interacts with faith, what and, and what this organization is doing to help with all that? Sure. I believe work existed before sin entered the world. So when we look at the creation story, you know, the very first act we read about is God working. Hmm. And Adam and Eve, before sin ever entered the world, they were commanded to cultivate the garden. And I think within the evangelical and Protestant more broadly world, uh, in recent, like let's say in the last century, there's been a real fracturing in how we think about work. And we think about work as a cursed enterprise. And indeed, work did become difficult after the curse, but that doesn't mean work itself is bad. And in fact, anyone who's unemployed or underemployed can tell you that there's something deeply human about working. And there's something that's deeply dignifying about work, even work that's really hard uh, and work that might not be glamorous. So when we think about work from a Christian perspective, I think we need to start by reframing work uh, as something that is, yes, an opportunity for us to share our faith with our neighbors. It is, yes, an opportunity for us to practice virtue and to live in a way that and points people to the things that we believe. But work is also, in and of its very, in its very core, is part of what it means to be human. Hmm. And work is part of what it means to uh, to take the gospel and embody the gospel in our culture today. So when I, I think about work, and the reason I love the Denver Institute for Faith and Work and serve on the board there is because I believe that they're doing a great job at helping people to reimagine and recapture the dignity and the, the importance and the purpose of work. And that means things like pushing back against work that is soul stripping, uh, fighting the, the ways in which work uh, has been um, made a commodity and the way people have been made a commodity, and also celebrating the way work is a really good thing. I think of my friend James, who runs a pallet company here in Denver. And this is someone who, in the, in the very nature of the business, it's, it's pretty mundane. I mean, ma- manufacturing and distributing pallets is not at all a glamorous sort of job. But James believes that all work can be dignifying and has taken some amazing strides over the past decade to bring his faith to work. And the way that manifests itself is James has taken some real risks in his hiring. And about five years ago, he sensed God saying to him that the mission field isn't just over there, but it's here as well. It's in your shop every day and you should begin to to see your work that way. And so he started hiring Burmese refugees here in Denver. And today of the 120 employees at his company, over 80 of them are Burmese refugees. And he's helped these Burmese refugees to acclimate to life in the United States and in Denver specifically. He's doing citizen, citizenship classes, language classes. He has chaplains on staff that can help these refugees deal with a lot of their past and challenges of acclimating and living in a foreign culture. And even this past Christmas, I got a chance to talk with James just a few weeks ago. He shared that they... Uh, as a Christmas gift, they bought all of the employees of their company, many of whom are starting in their work at very low income, really struggling financially. And he bought them top shelf Red Wing work boots hmm. and got them custom fitted for each of the 120 members of his team. And he described that many of the, the Burmese refugees specifically working at his company never had never owned a good pair of work boots. And so that's, you know, to me, a really 
powerful picture of someone who sees his work as more than just a means by which he can do other things like provide for his family, give charitably, all of which are good, but really misses the, it's not just a means to an end, but the means itself matters and it matters to God. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Thanks for, thanks for sharing all of that. Um, sorry, I just got caught up in the story. I don't even know what to say next. That's just really cool. <laughs> well, next, next time you're looking for pallets, uh, you let me know. Cause James, he said that, uh, one of the things he shared when I first met with him is that his business is finally becoming cool because of Pinterest and everybody wanting to like get, you know, rough pallet wood oh, for yeah. the various projects and garden boxes. And, and he said, it's the first time that my business has been uh, on Pinterest. So anyway, I love it. That's great. Um, uh, talk to me a little bit about the book that you co-authored. Uh, it's called mission drift. Uh, and, and you co-wrote it with a guy who works at hope. Is that right? That's right. My boss, Peter Greer. Okay. And, the. The book came out of our experience. Mission Drift was a, a reality that we saw in our organization and in our peer organizations that organizations like ours started with often a very vibrant commitment to faith, uh, often started by Christians like, you know, that, like the founder of Harvard, the founder of the YMCA, who themselves were vibrant Christians. And they weren't just Christians in their private lives, but they were, they brought their faith into the founding of their organizations. And we saw that organizations like, yeah, like Harvard, like Yale, the Y, uh, they, they started off overtly Christian and, and robustly Christian. And over time they just lost sight of why they existed. And they began to secularize and look more and more, uh, like totally, uh, faith absent uh, institutions, and and so we saw that happening in in our peer organizations. We saw it happening, the temptations for it happening within Hope, and and so we just decided we'd start to to bring the issue to the forefront by writing a book about it. And the response has been really incredible. I mean, we've had so many leadership teams of faith based organizations go through the book and view it as an opportunity to remind themselves and their staff and their donors why they exist and mm. why they were founded. And we think that's really important work. Yeah. Simon Sinek talks about starting with why. So this is more about mm. continuing with why. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. That sounds it's great. easy to forget in it. In any church or denomination or organization, you start getting into the, the parlance of corporate life and policy and, you know, credentials for hiring. And you just, it's so easy to get wrapped up in those things and lose sight of why we do what we do. Hmm. So we talk about Cynic's book and Cynic's work in Mission Drift. It's an important starting point. But the question we're asking is, how do you cultivate that over time and not lose sight of it as the organization grows increasingly complex? Mm -hmm. So if, if someone's in an organization and they're feeling like maybe they've lost their way, they can find the book on Amazon? They can find it everywhere. Yeah, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, ChristianBooks.com, Heart and Minds Books, which is one of our favorite local bookstores uh, that'll get you copies of it. So uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's available wherever books are sold. Great. Cool. How have you found the balance? Because uh, you have you have two kids, is that right? Three kids. I oh, okay. Two boys and a baby girl who was just born in December. Well, congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, what, how have you, uh, 
what has it been like having a family and doing the work that you're doing? It's a constant point of tension, and I don't think that tension will ever go away, or at least I don't think it should ever go away, because if we see our vocation as multifaceted, and our vocation including not just our, our work, our paid work, but our roles as husbands, fathers, brothers, sons, uh, then it's a tension that we just will have to navigate for all of our lives. Mm. And I think the most important thing is that those of us in leadership in our organizations model for the people that we lead how we are navigating that tension well. And so one of the ways we do that at Hope, and it's been extraordinarily helpful for me to see this model with my supervisor, is that we just have certain rituals and routines that help to safeguard our work. And one one simple way that that plays out is if someone sends an email on a Sunday to anyone else in the team, and that's one of the days that we we take off. I know church leaders might have might do things a little differently, <laughs> but uh, emails on Sundays. The question is almost always: Tell me why you were working uh, on email on a Sunday night. Huh. Uh, please share with me why that is. And in some cases, it's justifiable. You know, someone's traveling home from a conference and they're on the flight and they got to the airport and just the email sent out. But what it's created is sort of an expectation that we don't work on Sundays. And so there are all sorts of ways to safeguard and create balance. But that's been one that's been really helpful for our team to organizationally say, we want to create some hard stops here. Another one is we, uh, you can't accrue vacation days. So once you reach a max of 20 days, your vacation days go away because mm-hmm. they're not there for any other purpose than for you to use them. <laughs> and so we want our, our staff members to be taking their vacation and we incentivize them to do that because we don't want them to be carried over. Yeah. And another way, just again, super practically, but uh, when I finish my work day, I leave my phone plugged in at my desk. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing, I work from home, so that obviously makes that easy. But I, I find just removing uh, for a few hours every night uh, sometimes four to seven or five to eight, removing even the ability to be reached for a hmm. few hours each day hmm. helps me to be really present in my role as a husband and as, as a dad. I love that. That's one that I've been doing uh, recently as well, just putting it on the top shelf where I can't reach it and uh, playing music from it and just not looking at it. Um, there you go. I, I had a, there's a coworker who started with us recently and he said he was taken off for the day and he said, you heading out around five? And I said, no, I'm heading out around 3.30 or 4, and I'm going to go for a walk with my family, um, and I'm going to listen to a podcast, and I'm going to do – I'm going to get outside of the office and do continued education and, and uh, be out in nature and be with my family because I think that is just as important as me sitting at my desk for another hour and a half. So I think – I was listening to a podcast with uh, uh, Craig Rochelle the other day, Entre Leadership, I think is, it was called, and – he was just talking about margins, creating margins for yourself and how the good stuff will actually happen if you have those margins. Um, I think sometimes we like to max ourselves out and then there's no space for, for any creativity or for anything new to happen. So, um, yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Never shy away from the practical stuff. That's what we like on this podcast. So I appreciate that. Well, I, I don't always do it perfectly. So in some ways it's even aspirational to state some of these practices as a way of reminding myself of yes. the things that we've committed to. Yes. And there are seasons and times when you have to work a lot of hours and yep. various you know, roles within our vocation take on higher importance 
like when we had a baby. Uh, <laughs> I the, for for several weeks, nobody at work was going to hear from me. Yeah, and that's important. And there are going to be seasons like that for work too. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so you're going to the Dominican Republic next month. That's right. Yeah. You, uh, tell two, us about two months. Okay, two months there. What are you, what are you doing with that? What is that trip all about? Hope uh, at key milestones at five years and ten years offers the opportunity for our employees to invest in a dream that their family has had, and they provide a small amount of money to help make that happen. So we've always wanted to do uh, an international sabbatical as a family. So we'll be we rented an Airbnb with those funds, a small little house in a, a small community in the Dominican Republic, and so we'll be there for two months and. The, the goal is to rest well, to read a lot, to do a lot of work off, uh, offline and away from screens hmm. and try and uh, recenter as a family and use it as an opportunity to create memories together and, and to do the things that are really difficult in the normal grind of my job. Because of the fact that my team is spread out all over the United States and in fact, we have a member of my team in Hong Kong as well. Because of that reality, I, my, my schedule is almost full with phone calls and meetings. Mm. I and mean, I have probably 20 to 25 hours of phone calls every single week. And because of that, it often means that the, the work of writing books, of thinking, of reading, of research, it just gets pushed into the margins. And I, I just don't have really dedicated time for it. So uh, my supervisor, Peter, was really kind to say, Cancel all your normal calls for these two months. The, the members of your team will step up and they'll be given opportunities to lead. And And I want you to focus on the work that typically is last but is really important. Hmm. And I've really appreciated that. Andy Crouch says that uh, sabbatical is a circuit breaker for idolatry. <laughs> and I think that's a really powerful way of thinking about sabbatical. Yeah. And that shows up with Sabbath too. Sabbath is a circuit breaker for idolatry because if you're working all day, every day, really what you're believing is that your work is the most important thing in your life. Hmm. And, and by breaking the normal routines and habits going into the next two months, I'm taking a step to say, I am not indispensable. Uh, I am not the most important and, and only voice of leadership within my team and at hope. And I'm really attempting to embody that by stepping away from my day-to-day tasks. That sounds uh, both scary and really, really exciting. It is. I think I vacillate between the two each day. (laughs) Well, I hope that that is a a restful and restorative time for uh, you and your family. Um, Anything that we should expect out of that? Any projects or books or anything that we can be looking for in the future from you? Peter and I just got... uh, news this week that our next book project has a um, we have an official offer from a publisher so that's really exciting and I plan to be working on that and the book just to give you a a little teaser it's still unnamed or maybe I should say tentatively named uh, Rooting for Rivals and the concept because it's not official yet but the concept is that Mission Drift was focused on how you can help your own organization to remember why it exists, to focus on the why. And 
So this book, Rooting for Rivals, is a challenge to faith-based organizations and how they approach our culture at large, hmm. and that we can accomplish more together than we can by focusing on our own little fiefdoms, hmm. uh, and that as, if we have a kingdom mentality, that's going to mean that we're cheering for rivals, not rooting, uh, yeah, rooting for rivals, not cheering against them. And, and that's going to demand that we do all sorts of crazy things in the ways that we work together, both with other faith-based organizations and with city leaders and you know, secular organizations and those that we strongly disagree with. But for the sake of the gospel, we will creatively find ways uh, to link arms in specific areas to accomplish good in the world around us. So it's still a pretty vague concept. And honestly, that was a pretty terrible uh, summary of it. But no, it, wasn't. No, uh, it gives you maybe a little flavor for where we're heading with the concept. It, it sounds similar to what you were talking about with the uh, with the microfinance alliance in Colorado, just linking arms with people who may not be totally like-minded, but but can do good work together. Um, so yeah, that, that sounds great. Looking forward to it. Um, yeah, that's right. We always wrap up this show with a few rapid-fire questions. So I'm going to hit you with these really okay. quickly, and then we'll be done. Uh, tell me your favorite TV show, movie, and or book that you've watched or read recently. I think the, the, the book that I'm reading right now, which I'm loving, is uh, Harry Potter and the series. So I'm on book number four. Okay. First and I'm time reading through? it through a second time. Oh, no, second, second time. Second time through. Okay. And, and something, something I've started doing, and again, it's aspirational because I've only made it through twice or almost twice, but uh, is reading. I, I have a hard time reading fiction. I'm just always drawn to nonfiction. Hmm. So I've started reading through the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Lord of the Rings, and Harry Potter, those three series sequentially. And reading through them all the time. So I just finished up Lord of the Rings for a second time, and now I've started Harry Potter for a second time, mm. and I'm I'm reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids, and so that's been a really helpful uh, exercise. So I would say that, uh, although Thirty Rock is a pretty close second for a favorite show I watched recently. <laughs> okay, nice. And I know it's it's Oscar season right now. Have you seen any of those nominated for Best Picture or anything you want to recommend there? I really loved Arrival. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that, I but yeah. it's the, yeah, I think there's some amazingly redemptive themes in that film. Mm -hmm. Specifically, and I don't want to give too much away, but the the hero heroine of the story, uh, knowing that hardship was coming, knowing that a lot of difficulty was in her future, uh, chose chose to proceed with that. Even she chose to proceed with the hardship even knowing because it would create a lot of good in the world, uh, even in spite of what she knew was going to be difficult. And yeah. I think that's yeah, a really beautiful picture of what it means to be a Christian too. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a, it was a great film. Um, nerdiest thing that you're into right now, something where you go, I'm a little bit embarrassed to tell you about this, but I'll do it anyway. Fantasy baseball, without a doubt. I love <laughs> fantasy baseball. I research for hours. I've been in the same league for 12 years. We have contracts uh, we have uh, like ongoing dialogue throughout the season. It's not like one of these leagues that you check into uh, once a season. I mean, it's really yeah. nerdy. So and, on sabbatical, and, are you yeah, going to be keeping so, up with this? Absolutely. Oh, that's, man. That's Sabbath, that's Sabbath material right there. Okay. I, mean, I, I love fantasy baseball. So, yeah, I'm not, I am a little bit ashamed, but you asked for the nerdiest thing, and that's, <laughs> that's, that's it. So that's not uh, the circuit board for idolatry. You know, giving up your fantasy baseball for two months. No, it's. I don't feel like I'm addicted to it. Okay. Maybe that's what every addict says. But. 
what's the best meal that you've had recently, whether it's out and about in Denver or something you cooked at home? Last night, my wife and I had a date, and we went to the Denver Biscuit Company. Oh my god! Uh, in the in the new uh, Stanley Microplex. I don't know if you've been there yet, but no. it's a pretty cool place in Stapleton in an old airport manufacturing facility or airplane manufacturing facility. And uh, we had a massive biscuit. We split it to be fair, but a massive biscuit it was fried chicken, an egg, and homemade pimento cheese. Uh, on, on the biscuit, so oh, man. it, yeah, it's been really, really rich uh, <laughs> to even reflect back on that meal. It's the sort of meal you take a picture of. I'll oh, say yeah. that. Oh yeah, totally. I thought you were, I thought you were going to describe the Franklin, which is you know bacon uh, and gravy and all that. Uh, but I haven't no, had the I think pimento that, cheese. What was that one called? Was it the Dahlia or the Elmer? I can't remember, but okay. yeah, it was good. I'll have to try that one out next. Um, Okay, last question here, and I'm going to steal this one from Tim Ferriss, whose podcast I'm a, I'm a fan of. Uh, he asks his guests, if you could put a billboard anywhere in the world, where would you put it and what would it say? I should be listening to more of Tim Ferriss so I yeah. can think about this ahead of time. Uh, <laughs> I love how you don't, you don't fill this dead space with, that's a really great question, though. That's what a lot of guests do. You just think about it, and then when you're ready to talk, you talk. I... I would probably right now, and this is just my right now quote, Yeah. but this is what I would put up, and I shared this with my team recently at our uh, team retreat, but I would put a Jamie Smith quote yeah. uh, on a billboard, and the, the quote is from his most recent book, You Are What You Love, and, and the quote is this. He says, too often we look for the spirit and the extraordinary when God has promised to be present in the ordinary. Hmm. And I would put something about secular liturgies and dog parks and yoga class and brunch, <laughs> some combination of those things and a billboard in downtown Denver. Because I think we, in Denver, we, we are liturgists. Even if those are not things we're experiencing at church, we all have liturgies that shape our lives hmm. and i think that's where we are being formed and shaped and uh, i think as christians specifically we sometimes look for god in the mountaintop moments and and miss the the daily rituals and routines uh the places where we meet god and i think as christians we have an opportunity to invite our neighbors to say not like this is something crazy and different this is just a you're already you already have liturgies, and we're just inviting you into these liturgies, which mm. are a little bit unique. Mm. So that's that's, that's just sort of on the fly, but that's probably that's what I've been thinking about recently. <laughs> it's a big question, so I think I, no, I love that. That's a, that's a great quote. Because uh, who who doesn't want to put six hundred words on a billboard? I mean, that's <laughs> you know the sort of thing that that everyone would read. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and as a quick plug for those guys, you mentioned Andy Crouch and Jamie Smith. Uh, we have content from both of them at parkrenew.org. They're both uh, symposium alumnus, alumni? Alu I don't know how you say alums. that. Alums. Alums. There we go. They're symposium alums. So if you guys want to go to parkrenew.org and click on the symposiums tab there, you can listen to great content uh, from both Andy and Jamie. Um, Chris, that's all I have here. Thank you for the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, James. Have a great rest of your day. You too. All right, bye.
And that's our interview with Chris Horst. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Uh, some really good stuff from him there. And uh, you can go to parkchurchdenver.org slash podcast to find the interview with him, to find the, the show notes um, and all the resources that we mentioned here on the show today. So be sure to do that if you want to follow up. Um, and if you have any thoughts, questions, concerns, please email me, james at parkchurchdenver.org. We'd love to hear from you with those. Uh, and finally, uh, take a moment to subscribe to us in iTunes and, and rate us and review us while you're there. If you're enjoying the show, that will help other people find the show. So thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next month with the next episode of the Park Church Podcast.